morning. I want to start off with a couple of announcements, a couple of things I want to make sure that you're aware of. First of all, I want to say a word of thanks, and I have a lot of people who thank me. We had a great week this past week, Family Bible Week. The Lord sent some really qualified and uh, gospel-focused teachers to come in and teach, and I'm thankful for that. But Family Bible Week doesn't happen because three volunteers come to Wausau and help do Family Bible Week. So many of you volunteered, and you were working with the children, you were working with the refreshments, you were working in the nursery, you were volunteering in youth group, and I'm so thankful for all that you did. As a pastor, I'm thankful. As a father, I'm thankful. And then, as a worshiper, I want to make sure I express thanks for those people that came in and worked last week uh, to help... Um, to help direct our worship to the Lord. And so all of you who volunteered in music, um, just kind of a shameless plug, I am regularly grateful for people who volunteer in our worship team ministry. I'm so thankful for the way that they, I love singing, but I'm not very good at it. I have to follow good singers. And I, I like singing well, but I like singing true even more. And so I'm thankful for all of you who have volunteered. And then with music ministry, they come in early before any of us get here, and they practice like they did this morning so that they can help us worship today, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, ladies D group, please notice they will be starting a new study on faith Fridays 9 to 11 a.m. beginning June 25th through July 30th. That's not right. Okay. It is okay? Oh, I follow you. I can see how that could happen. I usually do that during announcements. But at this, this occasion, I didn't. Uh, by the way, Cindy is right here. Cindy, could you raise your hand? Cindy is right here. Cindy directs our D group ladies Bible study. If you have any questions at all, you should see Cindy. That's a great ladies Bible study. That is an outstanding study. If you have any questions, you can contact her. You can text her at that phone number. Not while I'm preaching. Please, Mark, yes, please. Yes, yes, if anyone would like to attend online, maybe you're watching from home even this morning, and you'd like to attend that online, there's an online option. Thank you, Cindy. Family Toolbox. It's been a couple months since we did our last Family Toolbox. If you belong to a family, we would encourage you on June 25th, what happens is you, you come here to church. Uh, well, first, we encourage you to go on a date. Go out, have supper with your spouse, talk about your intentional plan for discipling your children. Then come back here to church, and we have a wood toolbox, like the one in that picture, that you have to work really carefully to put together because it's of low quality. And so it, what happens is it's, uh, it's really hard to put together, and so it's a... It's an exercise in sanctification. We really would just want to minister to you. <laughs> the holes that are drilled usually aren't right. So when you come back, there will be a lot of temptation between you and your spouse to be angry and, and say harsh things to each other. But resist that temptation and put your family toolbox together. But seriously, it is a small toolbox that we encourage you to put together. If you want to see a really nice one, Pastor Will's got one in his office. I think we even did some decorating on the end panel. It's really sharp. So just go ahead and burst into Pastor Will's office sometime and take a look at that toolbox. 
But then you'll notice from the picture, it's not just the wooden toolbox. As a church, we want to equip you with some tools for doing family and discipleship in your home. And so we fill it with those books, too. So Family Toolbox, June 25th. Please sign up in the foyer. Child care volunteers are much appreciated. So when families come in to do the Family Toolbox, we like them to have somewhere to take their children. So child care is needed on June 25th. Please note that. Independence Day picnic, July 5th. July 5th. Here on the South Lawn at church. So that will be Monday, the day after the 4th of July, which is a Sunday this year. From 11 o'clock to 3 o'clock. Um, listen closely to some details. It is on the 5th. It is 11 to 3, and we ask that you bring a salad and or a dessert. There are a lot of opportunities to serve. If you want to know more about this, uh, Mike and Chris, are they in this room? Or are they in there? Mike and Chris. Um, if you want to know more about this, please see the Schlegels. Could you raise your hand one more time, Chris? Right there in the back, Chris Schlegel. If you want to know anything more about that picnic, what you should bring, what you should expect, uh, kind of activities for the day. The Schlegels lead that uh, as Mike is our deacon for family life ministry. Would you please stand with me? I want to read another question for us about our confession of faith. This question, again, relates to the text we'll be studying from Romans 13 later. What is the sum of the Ten Commandments? The answer is, the sum of the Ten Commandments is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our strength, and with all our minds, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. In Matthew 22, a passage I'll refer to again later, it says that a lawyer asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. We are going to sing together. And as we do, remember, it is an expression of loving God and loving the people who were with in worship.
Would you uh, please pray with me? You can be seated. Um, And I just want to make mention this is the part of our service where we would um, pray and ask the Lord to bless the gifts that are given in offering. But there won't be an offering plate passed this morning. However, if you would like to give, there are a couple of options. One of them is on the back uh, wall. There are three boxes. You can put offering in those boxes. Also, if you haven't, and it's the kind of thing you'd be interested in, you're welcome to sign up to give uh, online. Uh, You can do that a couple ways if you'd like to contact the church office. Uh, Thank you for being willing to learn new songs. That's a new song. We'll be singing that regularly over the next couple weeks. If you're, um, maybe you were singing that and thought, am I doing something wrong? Did I forget this? Well, you probably don't know that song yet, but it is a great confession of our soul. We sing hallelujah, our hope springs eternally. Our hope does not run dry. We have this hope in Christ. He is a sure and steady anchor. And in that hope, we prevail. Pray with me, please, this morning. Father God, your name is worthy of our praise. You are clothed in righteousness. Everything of you has been faithfulness. In you, all the promises are met and fulfilled in Christ as yes and amen. Your name is above every name. We, in faith, believe in full confidence that one day you will make every enemy your footstool. Your justice and your wrath are perfect in holiness. We are thankful to be able to worship you this morning. Our ability to worship is because first, Lord, you've brought our dead souls to life. But then you have sealed us with the spirit of promise and put in our heart a new song. It is because of you that we worship. It is towards you that we worship. It is by you that our worship is held fast. God, it is not in us Because we are people of unclean lips, we dwell among people of unclean lips. We say often that the things that we know we shouldn't do, we have done. And the things that in your spirit we know we ought to be doing, we are too often neglecting. This week, God, our time in prayer has been lean. We haven't treated your word like it was daily food. And so, God, we confess that in some areas, we need to humble ourselves and confess our sin, knowing that you, again, will be faithful and just to forgive us, to clean us from unrighteousness, because the blood of Christ has been poured out on our behalf. Lord, we are grateful to be able to worship in that confession that we are not deserving, but here we stand. We are not what we should be, but praise to your name, we're not what we used to be. We're thankful to be able to be together, to see each other, to care for each other, to to sing with each other. You have knit us together so that our confession of faith in songs that we sing is united In confidence, Lord, we sing 
You have trained us and taught us the truth of your word and, and continue to teach us as we grow up in Christ-likeness. God, thank you for the way that you bring us together, the way that you pour out good gifts. I am thankful this morning, God, for the, the testimony of the wedding that was here yesterday between Austin and McKelty. I'm thankful, God, for the way that, that you've worked in them so that they, they wanted to They wanted to plan their very special day in ways that would make much of you. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful today we're here together with Faith Family. We have Tom and Karen Steele celebrating an anniversary. I'm thankful for your faithfulness to them. I'm thankful for the faithfulness that they have in turn been to each other and to our church. Lord, we are grateful today that we have this opportunity to pray for each other. And as we knit our hearts together right now in prayer, as brothers and sisters, we are praying for each other. We're praying for people who are ministering, people who are hurting. There are undoubtedly people in our fellowship who are weighed down with grief. And I don't even know what all of those are, but I'm so thankful to pray to you because you know every one of them, and any tears that have been shed in that burden, you are catching every teardrop. God, how awesome it is that you are close to us in our grief, in our affliction. Lord, as we pray for each other, we know that there are brothers and sisters who are here, and they're rejoicing Their cup of worship is filled up. And they're here full of joy. They have known the joy of their salvation as if it were the first day again. And we're thankful to be able to minister alongside them and to be able to rejoice with them. And then God, there are men and women and young children who gather in churches just like this one, who are not saved. They're going to church because they don't deny you, but they don't know you. They're they're maybe close to you in the words they use, but their hearts are not yet there. And so God, I pray that as we sing and as we speak, as, as I pray and preach, and we fellowship together, that the good news of Jesus Christ would be undeniable that sinners who are condemned in their guilt would see the forgiveness that only Christ can bring and that today would be a day where the church and heavens rejoice at seeing salvation delivered again to people who don't deserve it. And so God, if you would compel friends who are here with us to faith and to receiving the grace that is available because Christ died in the place of sinners at Calvary, then we'll thank you for continuing to be the Lord who brings in harvest. Lord, as we think about gospel opportunities, discipleship that happens here to the church and to the lost, we are also thoughtful of sister churches all over our area. 
for the faithfulness of pulpit ministries, discipleship making, for the need to persevere in that faithfulness, and then, Lord, for, for our own missionaries who are ministering this morning with faithfulness and perseverance. And I, I pray, God, that they would continue to do that with a, a steadfast confidence that their labor is not in vain. That as they strive forward toward Christ-likeness, that they would know that treasure is being laid up in heaven as you are being exalted, and that cannot pass away. And so, God, we are thankful today to be here in worship together, worship of you, and praying together for each other. To you be all the glory and all the praise. And we pray to you because of the name and in the name of the blessed Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me and sing one more time?
Would you please turn your Bible to the book of Romans and the 13th chapter. That song is selected to lead us into this next part of our worship service because it's a confession of what we have to remember as we discuss the issue of law keeping. My God is merciful to me and merciful in Christ alone. God is merciful to us, but not because of something we've done, but in Christ alone. That's important because there are precepts, there are instructions that are given to us to obey. And we have to remember that they don't prompt God's favor to us. He is merciful to us in Christ alone. Let's read from Romans 13, verses 8, 9, and 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. You can be seated this morning. Children, uh, you can be discouraged. <clears throat> um, I think sometimes when it comes to the Christian church and the Old Testament, there can be confusion. Sometimes we're not sure what to do with the Old Testament. I I heard a man say once, as he was trying to explain something from the Old Testament, he said, you know, the Old Testament is like reading someone else's mail. He had concluded that it was hard to understand all the personal letters and the bills and the community mailings because it was just someone else's mail. I think that can happen. If I can use the word carefully, we sometimes run the risk of over-dispensating the Bible. What I mean by that is we sometimes draw compartments in Scripture that make certain compartments seem dark. Like the lights aren't all on in that compartment. I don't know what the point is there. But over here, in Romans, the lights are on. This I understand. Love each other, yes. But the law of God, the commandments of God, are kept in love. So, how do we think about the law? Would you hold your spot in Romans 13 and go back to Matthew 5? How do we think about the law? Maybe we think, well, Jesus came and he put an end to all of that. He destroyed it. It's abolished. The law is no more. 
The problem is Jesus himself said that is not, in fact, what happened. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, he's preaching a sermon on a mount, he's on the hillside, and he says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota or dot, these are uh, breath marks and punctuations. None of it will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, I don't want you to think that I came to make the law obsolete. One of the sad ironies is that there are people who draw a line between what Jesus said there and what Paul says. Literally to say, well, Jesus didn't understand completely yet how the gospel was going to balance the law. And so Jesus wrote some things that are someone else's mail. That is a sad approach to the teachings of Jesus himself. How does a Christian relate to the law without becoming a self-righteous legalist? That's the real question. Because, let me just start this morning by making sure we're aware that for every mile of walking, there are two miles of ditches. On one side, we could say, oh, the gospel fulfills all of that. The law has no implication for us anymore. So we don't have to worry about it. On the other side, there is legalism, which is At its worst, law-keeping to earn God's favor. At its best, listen close, legalism is doing what you're told because you were told so. That one's risky. That, that, That could get us. Doing what you're told because you were told to. So, if the law is not abolished, how do we relate to the law in a way that honors Christ's fulfillment of the law and avoids self-righteous legalism if the law is not abolished the answer is summed up in our text today love your neighbor as yourself let me pray that we'll understand and rightly apply that to our life god as we continue to worship you by submitting ourselves to your word by honoring your authority and instruction to us be glorified as you teach us as we listen and as we prayerfully commit these things to our function as an expression of worship. In Christ's name, amen. The title for my sermon is Law Keeping Without Legalism, which sounds impossible. Law Keeping Without Legalism. So Paul's teaching us how to go about being worshipers. That's what started all the way back in chapter 12. 
In chapter 12, verse 1, he says, listen, God is merciful. And he's done work. So now you are doing what's been done in you. Be a worshiper. Be a spiritual priest before God. And here he gets to the part about God's commands. If I'm a priest before God, how do I go about following instructions of the law? Well, first, let's talk about what is the law. Paul's already helped us understand what he means when he says law. In chapter 3, verse 20, he told us that the law was a mirror that made us understand what sin was. In Romans 3, 20. In Romans 7, 7, he says the law is a guide that leads us towards salvation. And as we've been studying over the past couple of months, in chapter 13, verse 3, he says that the law is a guard for us. Doing good. That's according to the law. So in other words, last night when we all were resting in our beds, the reason intruders did not break in and steal our possessions and do us harm is because God's given us the law. God's law is a mirror, it's a guide, and it's a guard. And it's not abolished. Chapters 1 through 11 of Romans explain to us the salvation that God has accomplished for us. Now chapters 13 through 16 are explaining to us the salvation that God has accomplished in us. You've heard me say here that salvation is not a single tense. Salvation is past, it is present, and it is future. When we talk about the salvation that's available in Christ, the good news, we are saying that we are saved from all of the sins we committed in our past. We are forgiven of those. We are also saved, friends, from the power of sin presently. And then, oh, are we looking forward to the day when we will be saved from sin's presence. It won't be anywhere around us. There won't be any draw toward it. It won't be there. Saved from sin, past, present, and future. This is what Romans 12 through 16 is explaining to us. How God has worked out salvation entirely for us and in us. So this morning, I think it'll help if we take verse 8, 9, and 10 and we alliterate them. Okay? Let's, let's plant a row of D's. A row of D's. First, in verse 8, we see that we have a debt. It's love's debt. In verse 9, we have love's duty, which can be complicated for Christians. We're not saved by works of righteousness, which we have done, but his rich grace is poured out. So does a Christian have any duty, any obligation? As verse 9 explains certain parts of the law. And then let's look at the last verse. And this is the one that is going to keep this sermon a gospel-centered sermon. Verse 10. Love's delight. Okay? Debt, duty, delight. Those are the three. Let's start working on the first one. Okay? Let's start working on the first one. Love's debt. The Bible says in Romans 13... And verse number 8, owe no one 
anything except love. So the fact that we owe something, look at verse 7. Look at Romans 13, verse 7. Don't owe outstanding taxes. But then as a way of transition from Romans 13, 7, he says, but, but when it comes to making payments, don't ever imagine that your payment to love others has ever been exhausted. That your schedule of repayment has ever been satisfied or met. But he says, owe no one anything except love. Now, we spent four weeks going through the call to true, authentic love. Back in chapter 12, verse 9, we were taught a great deal from Romans about loving. Owe no one anything. Let me say a quick pastoral word of caution. Maybe some of you have known someone who came to the conclusion, maybe partly because of this verse, that they should never go into debt. For instance, George Mueller had that view of this verse. And he would not borrow any money to build his orphanage. A person's conscience regarding debt is governed by the redeeming work of Christ. The example of that would be Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus felt like he had some debts to repay once the gospel had worked out in his life. But this verse is not telling us that we can't borrow money. Owe no one anything, here's the emphasis, except, this is telling us that we should have all our debts paid up with the exception of one debt. All of our debts paid up with the exception of one. This one will never be paid off. You You ever get from your bank a payment schedule? Oh, those are discouraging, aren't they? Maybe it was a vehicle, maybe it was your house. And they spell out, okay, you're going to make this much money in payment from now until forever. And you look at this schedule and you think, how are we ever going to make all those payments? But then the good news is when it comes to your mortgage, you look down pages and pages of schedule payments and then you finally see a line at the bottom. Now it's good news and it's bad news. Because you went out to buy a house for $200,000, and then you look down all the way to the bottom line, and it's not anything like $200,000. Welcome to interest. Um, However, that repayment schedule has an ending. Paul says here, don't owe constant repayment except for love. Never think you've paid off the amount of love that you owe to other people. It will always be outstanding. I want to make sure that I make this really clear. We can talk economics, okay? We'll use economics as a way to see this rightly. When you make a payment to someone that you're indebted to, you take money from your personal account and you transfer it to their account. Now, where did that come from, that money that's in your account? Well, you worked for it. You put it there. You earned it. You accumulated it. And you're paying out of it. But it's important for us to see here the deposit into your account of love from which you pay others, you didn't put into the bank. The account that we steward 
is oriented by a deposit of love we didn't make. I want to make sure we understand that. As I go through this, I might say this more than once. I am very mindful to avoid a subtle danger called the debtor's ethic. Here's what debtor's ethic would look like in terms of love. Jesus loved me, so I better get my act together and start loving other people. That would be debtor's ethic, frankly. Because what you have is an appreciation of what Jesus has done, and then you kind of pull yourself up by your spiritual bootstraps and go, okay, I'm going to be more like that, and I'm going to start loving people. And that would be a doctrinal error, dangerous, and gospel-less debtor's ethic. It's subtle, because it seems like, well, Christianity is to do what Jesus did. No, that's not what Christianity is. Our debt of love is to the extent to which deposit has been made. So the question is, how full is our spiritual account of love? How much love has been poured into our account that we're now responsible to steward and pay out? Well... Let's look at a couple passages. Jeremiah 31.3. The Lord said, I have loved you with everlasting love. Romans 5.5. God's love has been poured into our heart through the Holy Spirit. The deposit of love that we make doesn't come from our own account. But from the love that has been deposited to us. Basically, the question is, how much has God loved us? Frederick Lehman wrote a hymn in 1917. The title is The Love of God. The verse goes like this. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? If all of that, then to write the love of God above would drain up the oceans nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. That's beautiful, and you probably know it. You've probably enjoyed using it in worship. And you thought, wow, Lehman did a great job writing that verse. Maybe you know the story. Do you know where Lehman saw that verse? It was penned on the wall of an insane asylum by a man who had been carried from the room and buried. He wrote it on the wall. And when Lehman heard about it, he came in, he says, he put a stool in front of the wall, and he wrote out exactly what he saw written. Now, that's not the origin either. That verse, that poem, actually dates back thousands of years earlier to a Jewish poem called the Actimut. In all of its relaying, the truth remains. Even if you took every stalk on the planet and made it a quill, and you took every drop of water in the ocean and made it ink, and you took the sky itself and made it paper, you wouldn't have enough to be able to fully articulate just how much love God has poured out in our hearts. 
So, when it comes to the love of God, I'm aware that as I, as I talk about the love of God being poured into our hearts, there are people in the room who say, yes, I know that. I know it's immeasurable. I know that the love that he has poured out in my heart is everlasting love. But then there are people in the room who say, yeah, I think God is loving. But they're not sure. They don't know. Because maybe they're not yet saved from sin. I would tell you my hope and the hope of every Christian in the room is that you would see the depth of love that is directed towards sinners in Christ. If when I talk about this account, which God has poured love into, and just fills the account, and you'd say, I don't, I don't have any idea what it means to have an account that is full of God's love. It's so foreign to me. I would just ask you to consider with me, there's a very, very well-known verse in John chapter 3. It's verse 16. Most of you might know it. In John three sixteen, the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now, even the church might sometimes miss an important part of that verse. God loved so much that he sent. That's not the verse. It is God loved. And if you're unsure, here's proof. He sent his son. So that verse is not telling us that God became dominated by something he maybe maybe had reservation about doing, but his actions were trumped by his love. The verse tells us God willingly loved. And in case anyone is unsure, look, he sent his only son to give his life as a substitute for the punishment that every one of us sinners deserves. And so I, I want to be clear. If you don't know that love, look to the cross. And if that love isn't in your account, you're just hearing about it. I want to make sure that anyone here who is outside of salvation, you're, you're on the outside looking through the windows and salvation is strange to you. I want you to look to the cross, see Jesus Christ paying all of the debt that we owed. And with your heart, believe he did exactly what God said was being done at the cross. And with your mouth, confess. I know that I am a sinner. He is the Savior. Because of his sacrifice, I can be forgiven. Everyone who trusts in him will not be ashamed. I want to make sure that you understand. When I talk about the love deposited to us, that this is to us who are saved, something we know well. This is not debtor's ethic, though. This is God the Father 
who has worked salvation in us and taught us how to love by example. Think about the way a small child loves his mother. That love is not self-generated. Right? That love is natural and easy because that child has a mother who loves and cherishes him. This is not debtor's ethic. This isn't, well, I guess Jesus loved me, so now I'm supposed to love. This is... The natural way that a child is trained and taught and prompted by God to love. So first of all, I want you to understand this morning that when it comes to our relationship to the law, we have this debt to pay. Owe no one anything except love. So see yourself right now where you sit, owing love to the people around you. Owing love to the people around you. Let's move to the second one. Not just love's debt, but love's duty. So verse 9 There's a list of commands. Love has duty. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up with this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Listen, here is a list of sins. Don't commit adultery. This is sex with anyone who is not your spouse. Don't covet This means to yearn to possess something that already belongs to someone else. I want to draw a clear line here on coveting. When I come home at the end of work and I see a brand new boat in the neighbor's driveway, I can do one of two things. I can say, I wish I had a boat too. That's not necessarily coveting. But when I say, I should have that boat in my driveway. Now, definitely coveting. I don't just want something like what someone else has. I want to have it instead of them. So, these two in particular, adultery and coveting. The heart of the law is that we love each other. This is God's will for his people. We know that in our current sexual ethic of the day... Some people are so convinced that the only way to truly love is to commit adultery. And that somehow there is this expectation to a sort of coveting lust as an expression of love. That's sad, isn't it? Jesus says, don't do these things because you love. And we have a culture that says, if you love, do these things. Covet your neighbor's wife because you love her so much. Commit adultery to make sure that a partner really understands that you love them. How anti-gospel are some of these expressions that we witness. He goes on and says, don't murder. Murder is the unlawful, premeditated killing of another person. Don't steal. Don't take without permission or intent to return. And then just to make sure that we didn't think this was the only list we were supposed to keep, he says, and any of the other commandments. We were sitting in my office this week looking at this text written on the whiteboard. 
And I said, which of those do you think is the hardest one to keep? Don't commit adultery, don't covet, don't murder, don't steal. Let's just take those four. Those explicit. Which one is the hardest one to keep? Now, as you answer that question to yourself, let's go back again to Romans 5, or Matthew 5. Let's go back again to Matthew 5 and see how Jesus, Jesus changes the perspective on law-keeping in Matthew 5. So, right after the verses, the paragraph I just read earlier from Matthew 5, 17 through 20, there's following paragraphs. Would you, would you look with me as a Bible student, look at verse 21 and see the opening sentence. Look with me at verse 27 and see the opening sentence. Verse 31. Verse 33. Verse 38. Verse 43. You have heard it said, but I'm saying this. You have heard it said, but I'm saying this. You have heard it said, but I'm saying this. That's what we read at the opening of all those paragraphs. Now, what Jesus is doing is he is refuting debtor's ethic thinking. Like, you have heard it said, as long as you don't kill, you're innocent. But Jesus teaches, if you hate in your heart, you're guilty of murder. You have heard it said, well, as long as you don't commit adultery, then you're not an adulterer. But Jesus says, if you lust in your heart, you've committed sin already in your heart. So, which is the hardest to keep? Well, as we know here in this point, love's duty, they're all hard to keep unless we genuinely love. They're all hard to keep. It's hard to keep from being angry and hating people. It's hard to keep our hearts from lusting. It's hard to keep from being selfish consumers, wanting stuff instead of other people wanting stuff. The love of God will express itself in us in the way we deal with people who are made in his image. So let me say right now, when it comes to loving other people, this is not easy. Say, loving others is not easy. It's not easy because... Others is people like me. And there's some things about me that are not easy to love. Loving others is not easy. So maybe we're struggling with motive. What will motivate me to love? Well, first of all, don't forget, there's already been a deposit made, poured out into our account, and we are loving out of that account. But second, we are not loving the fallen attributes of our friends and family. Love the divine attribute of friends and family. What is that? The people we're directed to love are people that the Bible testifies are created as bearing the image of God himself. Listen to what I mean in James chapter 3, verse 9. He's talking about bridling the tongue. Like We have this big mouth problem. And he says, with your mouth you bless the Lord and Father, and with it you curse people who are made in his likeness. 
James is pointing out how preposterous that is. To say to God, oh God, you are wonderful and splendid and magnificent. You are awesome. And then to look at the creature made in his image and say, you're disgusting. Wait. I was made by him in his image. And so maybe we struggle a little bit with the motive. How do we love a person who has fallen attributes? I think we have this great help seeing that person as an image bearer of God. Whether it's in a redeemed state or a fallen state. God's laws are not moral rules or abstract mandates. They are rules of love. Can you think of any time God told us not to do something, even though doing it would have been good for us? Can you think of a single time when God said, don't do that, yes, it would ultimately be good for you, but I don't want you to do it. Like, when God gives us instructions, have you ever evaluated one of them and went, wait, if I did that, it would turn out better for me? There's not one that's that way. Every one of them, we might not enjoy obeying because we're sinners. But when we look ahead at what will be the fruit of our obedience, we always see that it's for our good. He says, therefore, this law is summed up in this word, in verse 9, love. And it's true. Jesus had already said this was true in John chapter 13. Jesus says this. A new command I give to you, that you love each other just as I have loved you. You all sort of love one another. By this all people will know you are my disciples if you love one another. So, so here, <clears throat> Jesus says, let me explain to you what it means to obey me in right attitude. He says, negatively, don't murder each other. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal from each other. Don't lie to each other. Don't covet. That's stated negatively. Don't. Love. So don't do these things. Here he states it positively. Love them as you love yourself. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Do you love yourself? The Bible says a couple different times that we do, by nature, we love ourselves. Some people struggle with a self-deprecating idea. They're, they're really critical of themselves. Maybe some of us know someone who has been so self-critical that they took their own life and committed suicide. Is committing suicide an act of not loving yourself? No. It's a clear expression of loving yourself. Whatever pain you're going through, whatever discouragement you've been experiencing for a long time, you want it gone. And you think ending your life will make it go away. Even suicide doesn't mean people don't love themselves. It is, in fact, an expression of loving yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
who's the neighbor, right? You're sitting here. You're sitting next to people. You're sitting next to family. Like, let, let's just take the Menards. Menards, hello, Menards. Good to see all of you today. Chris Menard is sitting next to Teresa. If you know Chris, you know for Chris, loving Teresa is easy. It's not difficult, right? But Chris knows that Teresa is his neighbor. Therefore, he sits himself on the end of the aisle so he has no other neighbors. We, we, know, we know that the neighbor is broader than that, don't we? And so we, we could answer this question by looking back to the law itself. In Leviticus chapter 19, who is the neighbor? He says this in Leviticus, the giving of the law. He says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. So when someone of your own people sins against you, don't hold a grudge. My wife is good at that. I can sin against her and she doesn't hold a grudge. Because we're neighbors in marriage. But is it in there? Well, that's Leviticus 19.18. Here's Leviticus 19.34. Also, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you like a native among you. You shall love him as yourself. Hmm. Loving my neighbor isn't just my spouse or my family or my neighbor or who's sitting next to you. It's even the sojourner, the stranger. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus told the parable because he was, he was trying to be by a young lawyer. And the young lawyer says, yeah, I, you know, I'm keeping all these laws, I'm keeping all these commandments. And he says, but who is my neighbor who I'm supposed to love? The young lawyer was trying to justify himself. He says, I love Israel. And Jesus says, let me tell you a story. There was a man. He doesn't say anything else about the man. There was a man who fell ill, in peril, among robbers alongside of the road. Along comes Jesus' words, and by chance, it's, it's his parable. By chance, along comes a Levite. Goes on the other side of the road. Don't even want to be close to that. Along comes a priest. Other side of the road. Don't want to be close to that. And then Jesus says, as if to plunge a dagger into the heart of the self-righteous lawyer, and then came a Samaritan. When the young lawyer said, I'm keeping the law. I love my neighbor. I really love the other Jews. And then Jesus brought up the S word. Samaritan. That's not a coincidence. The young lawyer said in his heart, I hate Samaritan. And then in the story, here's a kind, selfless, helpful Samaritan. As if to turn to the young lawyer and say, how do you feel now? And like Jesus did, often, he spoke words of conviction because he was speaking words of life. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Bible tells us that husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. For no one has ever yet despised his body, but they nourish it and they cherish it. Let me invite you to think about as we leave point, Matthew 18, 23. As we think about love's duty. In Matthew chapter 18, there is another parable where Jesus teaches about loving as we have been loved. 
He says in verse 23 right away, the kingdom of heaven might be compared to this. And then he says, there is this king who has a servant, someone in his kingdom. Seems like he's kind of an important part of the kingdom. Very wealthy man, but not a good manager of money. And it comes the time for all the accounts to be balanced. And this guy comes in and he says, all right, you owe me. Now listen to this. This guy owes the equivalent of 200,000 years of a laborer's wages. The average laborer would work 200,000 years and give 100% of it to the king to pay off the debt. And he says, okay, you owe me 200,000 years worth of wages. And he says, um, Oh, very good. Um, I thought that was somebody else. Um, I thought it was somebody I was responsible for. And he says, he says, you owe me 200,000 years of wages. And the guy says, I will repay it. I will repay it. Listen closely to those words. I will repay it. And the king takes pity on him. The king knows he can't repay it. But he says, it's forgiven. Go. The guy leaves and goes out and finds another guy who owes him, listen, 90 days worth of laborer's wages. Not 200,000 years, 90 days of laborer wages. A summer, a summer job. And he says, I'll repay it, I'll repay it. And he says, I do not forgive you. You'll be cast into jail until you can repay the debt. Now, why does that servant not forgive? I would suggest that there's one really important element in that first servant. He doesn't say, be merciful or gracious to me. He tries to make a case that he can make it right on his own. I will repay it, he says. It's in verse, it's in verse uh, 26. Servant fell on his face, imploring him, have patience on me. I will pay you everything. I can do it. So when it comes to the way that we interact with other people, I'm going to suggest that it is going to be linked to the way we think God has interacted with us. This is really important. I really, really want our church to see this. We have offended each other in a variety of ways. And that's not going to end this side of heaven. There will be these sad reoccurrences of offense as we battle sin in community. And the way you respond to that person's offense against you will be determined by the way you think God has interacted with you in your offense to him. If I stand in this place and say, I am forgiven because I worked it out. How can I not come over here with my fellow offender and say, I'll forgive you when you work it out. There is a doctrinal deviation that will 
infect the way we interact. See, I, I just want to plug quickly. There's this whole, like, there's this whole movement of just, like, tell us how to be better people. And the truth is, no Bible teacher can tell you how to be a better person without explaining to you the better truth. The truth determines what we do. But we want to divorce it from the truth. The truth is too hard. It's too heavy. It doesn't make sense to me. I didn't go to seminary. It doesn't make sense. Just tell me what to do. And if you don't see the way you've been forgiven by God in mercy and grace, that's the doctrinal truth, then you're going to struggle. You're going to struggle to interact with each other. And we'll hold that grudge. I raised the question, who is our neighbor? Who are we supposed to love like this? Who is it our duty to love this way? And the answer is everybody. But that's not the biggest question. The biggest question is who is supposed to love this way? Who is supposed to love this way? Could you just say who? Yeah, yeah. Who is supposed to love this way? Not everybody. So we are supposed to love everybody this way, seeing them as our neighbor. But not everyone is supposed to love this way. Who would love this way? Go back to that. God, an endless deposit of love poured into their account. Christians, we are supposed to love this way. When an unbeliever offends us, when they act evil against us, are we still surprised? Let me, let me say it another way. When those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, following after the course of the power of the air, Satan himself, who is their father, and they do evil, are we still surprised? Children of Satan, following the course of the prince of the power of the air, do bad. And yet, there's some degree of surprise. Like, <gasps> who is supposed to display this love? Those who have had that love poured out in their account. Christians are stewarding this love. Therefore, this sort of love has to be an exceptional expression in the church. This has to be an exceptional expression in the church. There should be something in the church and the way that we interact with each other and the way that we interact with others that should be extraordinary. This afternoon, you're invited to participate in a Bridges meeting. Bridges. It is a ministry called Bridges because we see three bridges in the ministry. There are some bridges of connection between my family and your family in the church. There are some bridges between my family and a small child in our community. But there's a third bridge. There's a bridge between my family and a parent of a small child in our community. There are three bridges to Bridges Ministry. And when we love in a way that is not always natural, it is a great reminder of this instruction. We love in a way that's not convenient. It's, it's not easy. But it's this instruction. We are commanded to this love. Let me walk quickly through the last one. Love's desire. This is where, this is where it's important. Because I've just talked to you about your debt, and I'm concerned about debtor's ethic. 
I just talked about your duty, and I'm concerned about legalism. This point has to be preached. This is the third one. Love's desire, verse 10. Love's desire. Love does no wrong to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love desires the well-being of others. The underlying principle of the religious world is law-keeping. The underlying principle of Christianity is love. Love is not consuming but contributing. If we, went to, if we had time to go to 1 Corinthians 13, love does not consume but contributes. You can't love someone and steal from them. It is so confrontational or countercultural to modern thinking that we love them and we contribute to them. Unfortunately, so much of what calls itself love is consuming. You see, let me give you one illustration I think is convicting. Again, if uh, we'll use my neighborhood. If I drive into my neighborhood and I see that my neighbor has a new car, the one I've, I've really been keeping my eye on, and I see that he now has that exact same car I've really, really wanted, versus my soon-to-be 17-year-old son gets a brand new car. Am I tempted to covet one of those more than the other. I am. It's true. It's convicting. It's true. I am tempted to covet that someone else who I don't love as much as my son has something. But I not only don't covet the new car for my son, I might go out and buy a new car for my son. Some of us have been able to do that. You went out and provided vehicle for your teenage son or daughter to drive. We're we're not coveting. We're loving and not consuming, but selflessly contributing. This is the only way to do law-keeping without legalism. It can only honor Christ if it flows out of the love of Christ in the gospel. Galatians 5.14, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love's moral conscience fulfills the law, but not out of duty, out of delight. Let me summarize. I want to finish this way right here. Law-keeping without legalism. It's when the love of God is first poured into our hearts, we are transformed so that even our desire is a gift from God to be able to joyfully love others. There are numerous misapplications of keeping the commands of the Lord. Loving because we're told to is legalism. But loving because the gospel's work has transformed is obedience and delight. Paul refers to himself as a debtor. So he says, I preach the gospel to Greeks and barbarians. That's in Romans 1.14. Christians are stewards of a great deposit of love that has been poured out in us. 
And because of the sort of transformation, again, let me remind you, Romans chapter 12, don't be conformed, don't love because it's culturally popular, but be transformed from the inside out. This is gospel-directed, new desire of our heart, not obligation to law-keeping. Now, what's amazing uh, turn your Bibles to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. Uh, after Isaiah, Psalms and Proverbs. It's, it's not easy to find. It's someone else's mail, right? No. Otherwise, I have to redo the last 45 minutes. Jeremiah 31. What I'm saying about this third point, love's desire. It is a genuine, authentic, transformed from the inside out desire. And it's exactly what God promised he was going to do in the gospel. In Jeremiah 31, start reading in verse 31, there is the new covenant. And he says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. I will put my law within them. I am not, listen, this is so important. I am not asking you to keep the law by loving your neighbor with strong hands. That's legalism. I am saying that the gospel provision for law keeping out of love is when God writes new code on our heart. I will put it in their heart. I will write it on their heart. I will be their God and they shall be my people. That promises us that we don't have to tell each other, just do a better job. We know that in our salvation, in the gospel, in the love deposited to our account, it's been written on our hearts. Love your neighbor as yourself because of the regeneration of your heart. Out of heart confession, the mouth speaks. I said before, I just want you to know, I just want you to know that the issues of life flow out of the heart. The issues of life flow out of the heart. And, and I know sometimes there is a question, can we get the issues of life apart from the confession of the heart? And I, I just want you to know that we can't. Not in a way that honors Christ. We can nudge each other to do a better job and not honor Christ. But when there's internal transformation, the heart of stone is regenerated and it becomes a heart of flesh and truth of God, doctrinal, theological truth becomes our stalwart confession. Yes, Lord, I believe. And then we walk 
by faith in what we believe. But I only go this way rightly from what I believe. I'm going to say more about that in a little bit. There is doctrinal conviction that shapes the way we live. It is confession of our faith. It is biblical theology. It is traditional, historical orthodoxy. And it shapes us. It matters. Let me explain to you in a really vivid illustration. Drew, do you have the next slide for me? Yeah, that one. Uh, A lot of you are aware of this. Jerry and Deb have been home from the mission field for about five years, serving faithfully for decades in Africa. The Lord's been moving in their life, and they have committed to balance the great imbalance. And had been had spent time praying and seeking ways to honor the Lord in that. And what I mean by balancing the great imbalance is that we are sending scores of missionaries from our churches to people who are reached already. They fall in the category of already reached. And the Lord has worked through some recent ministries here at church to prompt Gary and Deb to go to a place I can't tell you right now, um, a place that's inside what's called the 1040 window, where there are people who are not reached. And there are people who live there who couldn't ask someone in their town to explain Jesus to them. That's what that means, okay? There are people who live in places that if they went door to door and knocked on the door and said, explain the biblical Jesus to me, they would hear, sorry, I can't. Sorry, I can't. I don't know what you're talking about. I can't. And yet we're sending missionaries to other places. And so Gary and Deb are reapplying to the mission agency right now. And Lord willing, in the next year to two years, they'll be ministering out from us to an unreached people group. But here's what I want you to understand as a way of praying for them. And we're so thankful with some mixed emotions. Gary and Deb don't the mission field because we got together and said, act more like Christians. They're prompting to return in the shadows of retirement years is a doctrinal prompting. What Gary and Deb do, they do because of the confession of their heart about who God is. And it changes the way they live in their 60s. Law keeping without legalism. Not because we're going to go because God will approve of us more. We are adopted children of God. And we love worship. And there are people who can't worship because they don't even know who Jesus is. So we'll go there. And we'll tell them who Jesus is. 
So the elders are praying about ways that Emmanuel is going to put our arms tightly around them as they go. We're also praying about the possibility that another couple from here might go with them. They're seasoned missionaries, and they know from their mission agency, their mission agency is not going to let them do missions forever. They're going to at some point tell them they should come home. But I think it would be great if two people could go with them and serve and learn the ropes from seasoned missionaries so that when the time comes for them to come back here and minister again, there might be some missionaries who stay out from us. About six years ago, my wife and I announced to our congregation that we were making a move to go from Greenwood to Wausau. And when we... Show me the next slide. The song one. He Will Hold Me Fast is the song we sang on that Sunday. And it's a song that we've picked to sing today. Let's stand and sing it.
precious in His holy sight. He will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by Him at such a cost. He will hold me fast. Pray with me, please. Who have we in heaven or on earth? Save the Lord our God. When you have declared us forgiven, free from condemnation, then who could condemn or lay any charge against your elect? It's Christ. It's Jesus who has died and ransomed us from our sin. And if there is no fear of condemnation from you, then what have we to fear? All authority in heaven and earth is given to you. You commission us to go and make disciples. Not as many as possible in a place, but some in every place. And behold, you are with us always. So we pray for the joy of Gary and Deb to abound more and more as they look forward to an opportunity to cast all their care on you, to walk by faith, and to sing, you will hold us fast. 
until all of this is turned to eternal light. All that we have hoped for is realized. You will hold us fast. God, I pray for Emmanuel, for the investment that we get to make in partnership with the Sharpings, for the continued opening of doors of opportunity, for this application, for fundraising, and for ultimately departing and serving in joy and in Christ-rooted, gospel-centered motivation and faithfulness. We pray to you, glorify your name. In the name of our King, who reigns forever and ever. Amen. You can be dismissed, but I would remind you that in three minutes, we'll have a seat and take care of a church vote. But for now, you are dismissed.